take out your Bibles and turn to Genesis 1. This morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. We started off last week by looking just at verse 1. We talked about how Genesis is a book about beginnings. And we tried to establish last week how important beginnings are, because beginnings determine ends. Beginnings determine everything. What you believe about the beginning affects what you believe about everything else, which then affects how you live and how you act and how you do everything else. Because, as we're trying to make clear, belief always precedes behavior. What you do is always a result of what you believe, which makes believing correctly foundational. And foundational to believing correctly are the first three chapters of Genesis. Because this is the book that introduces to us our God. In the beginning, God. He's the primary actor. He is the subject. He is the point and the focus. So we spent much of last week looking at and learning him, and we're going to do that same thing today. We're going to focus one more week on the very beginning, because the beginning teaches us about the one who began the beginning, the one who is before all things, the creator of all things, the beginner of the beginning. So if you're sitting here listening to this message, you are alive, obviously. We are living creatures, and as such, we inherently desire to stay alive. Life is good, death is bad, death haunts us and terrifies us. It's always there in the background, lingering, threatening to bring it into everything we want to live. Well, John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God, according to Scripture, is life. Because God is life, and thus He is the author of life. He gives life to everything, and He gives life to us so that we may know Him and live in relationship with Him. Knowing God is the most important thing. Knowing God is life. Do we really believe that? Do our lives indicate that we believe that knowing Him is the most important thing? So that's our goal in studying this book that is the beginning of his revelation to us of himself. We want to know God. And our goal in this series is not just to think about Genesis or think about God. Our goal is to get to the point where we are so shaped by God's revelation of himself that we then begin to think about everything else through that lens. Because Christianity is not just a set of random beliefs we tack on to our current beliefs or our current life. It's an entire worldview. Right? It is an entire way of thinking and looking at life. It is a complete renewal of the mind by which you now see and live differently. We need our minds shaped by Scripture. And as we've been arguing, fundamental to this understanding is, be is understanding the beginning of everything and God as the beginner of Everything. Right? So as God continues to introduce himself to us in the very first verses of the Bible, we want to stop and listen. We want to linger for a little bit here. Sometimes we obsess over the wrong things when it comes to Genesis chapter 1. We'll talk about that some next week. But this isn't here primarily to answer our questions about days or dinosaurs or Darwin. It's not necessarily here to answer all of our 21st century science questions. It's here to show us God, the creator 
king of the universe as he builds and establishes his kingdom. This is less concerned with the how of creation than the who of creation, the, the creator. God is the point of Genesis 1-1. Remember, 35 times in the first 35 verses, God, 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 God. Focus on him. He's the focus of everything. Genesis 1, uh, Genesis, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the whole Bible, all of reality. We're trying to see that it is all about him. So let's see what else we can learn about this great God from the first three verses of the Bible. I have some awesome alliteration action for you this morning. Did you catch that? That's good. Uh, four main points. We have God is personal, God is plural, God is powerful, and God is phonic. It's a stretch. I'll explain it when we get to it. I'll explain it when we get there. Uh, but first, let me read the text. Just again, three more verses. We'll get through some bigger chunks starting next week. Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3. This is God's word for you today. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Let us first begin with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I love preaching your word. I enjoy it, and I delight in it, uh, but it is also somewhat terrifying, uh, Lord. And, and so I ask and plead. For your Holy Spirit to come and to work through your word in this time on our behalf. And Father, I pray that my focus would not be to wow or to impress or to entertain, uh, but my focus and the point of this time would be uh, to point us to you and to your goodness and to your grace and to your power and to who you are and to what you've done for us. And ultimately, to see how even Genesis chapter 1 points us forward to Jesus Christ. Father, we need your help. I need your help to speak. Um, we all need your help to hear and to listen. So, Father, work on our behalf in this time. And we ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you were forced to pick what were the four most important words in the Bible, I think it would have to be the first four, in the beginning, God. Because everything else is built on this foundation. If these first four words are true, then everything else follows. The problem for us is that the title God has become a somewhat vague and meaningless word. You go ask a hundred different people what they mean by the word God, and you'll get a hundred different answers. The old saying is that God created us in his image, and ever since then, we have been returning the favor. Meaning, we have a great tendency to envision and fashion and shape God to be like what we want him to be like. Well, that's not how it works. Genesis won't allow that. The God we are introduced to here is a very specific God. As we saw last week, he is the one God, and there is no other. We don't get to decide what he is like. Oh, you know, I like to think of God as whatever. No, we submit to what he reveals about himself to us. And one of the most important things that we see in these first verses is that God is personal. 
Now, this may seem obvious to us today because we've basically de-deified God to be little more than our buddy, my, my, my best friend Jesus. He's our own personal genie in the sky. But the fact that God is personal is a very big deal. One of the most important questions of any worldview, any system of belief, and one that depends on what you believe about the beginning, is the question of, of foundations. Right? Philosophers from the very beginning have been arguing over the question, well, what is the world really made of? What is the basic building block of reality? What is the simplest element to which everything else can be reduced? In the 6th century BC, Thales, he's sometimes said to be the first Greek philosopher, he argued that the world was made of water. Right? The basic building block of reality was Water. Then guys started arguing with him. Heraclitus said, no, no, it's fire. Another guy said, no, it's, it's air. And everyone's arguing, what is the world made of? Well, today, scientists and philosophers do the same thing. Most of them are materialists, and so they would argue that the world is made up of matter. Atoms and protons and neutrons, quarks, gluons or strings. I don't understand most of those things. No one really does. But the argument is, what is the fundamental substance? When we get to the very bedrock principle of the universe, what do we find? It's here, Genesis 1-1. God. And he is personal. In the beginning, God. There's nothing before him. There's nothing behind him. There's nothing more foundational or, or fundamental. Before anything else, there was the personal God. Well, what do I mean by personal? What is a person? Again, I don't I don't mean a person in the exact same way that, that we are persons, but a person is one who can perform the actions of thinking and knowing and planning and, and doing and loving, creating and, and speaking and so on. So when we affirm that God is a person, we are saying that he is not a force. When we say that God is a person, we are saying that he is not matter. He is a person and thus he is a mind. Right, the big battle between theists and materialists or naturalists or atheists is, is this question, is it mind before matter or is it matter before mind? What comes first? Well, what is the world made of? Everyone around you in the world says that matter is all that exists. It is the most basic. Thus, through some process that no one understands over the course of billions of years, somehow matter develops into mind, the minds and the consciousness that we have. But everyone else would say that matter is first. It is basic. But here, the biblical worldview, according to Genesis 1, affirms our silly motivational cliche, it's mind over matter, or it's mind before matter. Mind and personhood are foundational and basic. God is first. Okay, why does that all matter? Why do I not mind taking some of our precious time to dwell on this? What does this mean for us that God is personal, that he is a mind, and that he is the one who starts all of this? Well, if God is personal and relational, and if I am created in his image, that means that my identity is irreducibly relational as well. I am not an island unto myself, but I am a small part of the continent of God's creation. And if God is a person, that gives great dignity to the very idea of personhood. If God is a person, and he is the foundation of all of reality, and I am a person, well then that gives me, a person, great dignity and great value. 
And the human rights that everyone is so obsessed with today are rooted here in Genesis 1-1 and in the absolute personality of God. But if matter comes first, if we are just the next step in the evolutionary process, if we're just a random collection of atoms, then it's hard to make any real case for human dignity and equality. If you don't believe that, go read some of the works of the ethicist, a guy named uh, Peter Singer. He used to be at Princeton. I think he's somewhere else uh, now. But some of his stuff is really, really disturbing, but it's the logical conclusion of the worldview that we find ourselves surrounded he, he, he refers to um, uh, believing in the dignity and value of human beings as, as speciesism, right? You know, we're giving over, you know, we're, we're obsessed with the human species over all the other species. And he says that's wrong. He writes, a chimpanzee, a dog, or a pig, for instance, will have a higher degree of self-awareness and a greater capacity for meaningful relations with others than a severely retarded infant or someone in a state of senility. Since neither a newborn infant uh, nor a fish or a senile um, older person is a person, the wrongness of killing such beings is not as great as the wrongness of killing a person. You see, this is the logical outworking of the materialist worldview. Right? If we're all just composed of the same things that animals are composed of, well, there's really no inherent human dignity, no value. Abortion, great. He argues for pushing abortion post-womb until the child is officially a person at age one or two or three or whatever that age is. He argues strongly for euthanasia of older people and mentally handicapped people because he has no concept of person. That's why it matters that the first thing we're seeing here, that before all that exists, we see that God is a person, right? We need his personhood. If mind comes first and a person that is not just a person, but God, who later reveals himself to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and sin, right, that is what, that is the who, that is the bedrock, that is the foundation of all of reality. God is persistently personal. He is resolutely relational. Right? He, he is a relational God. We'll see this in a couple weeks when we get to it, but some people will try to argue that the account of Genesis 1 and the account of Genesis 2 uh, conflict with each other. It's not true. They're actually beautifully complementary. In Genesis 1, we're introduced to God. You see G-O-D, God, in the English. Remember, the Hebrew behind that is Elohim. Every single time in Genesis 1, all the way through to the first couple chapters of Genesis uh, 2, indicating, again, his, his sovereignty, his, his majesty. He's the creator king of the universe in all of his majestic transcendence. He is God, Elohim. But then, when you get to chapter 2, remember chapter 2 starts to narrow in the focus more specifically on God's creation of man and God's relationship with man. Well, then all of a sudden, for the first time, you'll see there, we get the Lord God. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. It's the first time we see this in the new section of the book. Lord God, Lord being in all caps. It's in verse 4, 5, 7, 8. Nine. And in those verses, God is creating man and woman. So why all of a sudden do we go from God to Lord God? 
Well, because Lord in our English Bibles and the all caps is a bad translation. I'm still waiting for someone, a publisher, to be bold enough to translate the Old Testament in the way that it should be translated. Because in Hebrew, the word is not Lord. The word is Yahweh. Whenever you see Lord in all caps, it is Jehovah or it is Yahweh or however you want to pronounce it. It's not the title Lord, but it is God's personal name. His personal covenantal name. When the focus becomes on God in relationship with mankind, we go from Elohim to Yah. Not only is he transcendent, but he is eminent. Not only is he the creator king of the universe, but he is the covenantal Yahweh of his people. The God who creates is also the God who relates. We can know this God. We were created specifically to know this God. We can be in relationship with him. We were created specifically to be in relationship with him. God is personal. But we've got to unpack that further. So let's do that by going on to our next point. Number two, God is plural. Now, if heresy alarms are going off on your head, that's fine, that's good, because the wording is potentially problematic. I almost didn't use this title, but I decided to stick with it because it's a very important point, but let me make sure I'm clear. Plus, it's literally true. Remember, in verse 1, the Hebrew word for God is Elohim, and it is a plural noun, so technically, Hebrew God is plural because the word God is plural, but I want to clarify what I mean by saying that God is plural. Because one of the key points that we looked at for much of our time last week is that God is one. Right? Isaiah 45, 5. I am God, there is no other. And as we saw last week, part of Moses' purpose in writing was to combat the many competing worldviews and creation stories surrounding Israel at the time. And these creation stories from these pagan religions always included a pantheon of gods, a, a plurality of gods. Some estimate that there were over 2,000 different gods in the Egyptian pantheon. In Greek mythology, there are 12 main gods, the gods of Olympus, but then some estimate over 3,000 different other gods in the Greek pantheon. All of the creation stories, the other ones, start with some sort of war among these gods. They're fighting for supremacy. They're making people to be their slaves. Creation is a result of conflict between the gods. And in the midst of all of this, Moses drops Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. Only one. No war, no conflict, no other competing gods. One God. So what in the world, then, do I mean by God is well, let's look at verse 2. Let's move on to verse 2. Skip the first part of verse 2, actually. It's fascinating. We'll come back to that in a second. Let's look at the end of verse 2. The end of verse 2 reads, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Again, we're now only two verses into the whole Bible. Verse 1, God creates everything. Verse 2, the Spirit of God hovers. There seems to be some sort of distinction here between God, one, and the Spirit of God, verse two. 
The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. I can't do the, the cool guttural thing. But that word can also be translated wind or breath. So some have tried to make the case, well, this should just mean the, the wind of God was hovering over the water. But the fact that in the Hebrew it's ruach, Elohim, it's uh, spirit and God together proves otherwise. Because every other time in the whole Old Testament that we have these two words together, it means the spirit of God. So it means the same thing here in verse 2 as well. So we have God, verse 1, is this plural Elohim word describing him. Then we have the Spirit of God in verse 2, implying like, well, what's going on here? Who exactly is the Spirit? Well, now jump down and let's cheat ahead to verse 26. We'll get to this verse in two weeks. Verse 26, in the midst of creation, we're on the sixth Day, we read in verse 26, and God, Elohim, said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God says, let us. Now, some will say, well, he's, he's talking to the angels, or he's talking to the heavenly council, whoever that uh, may be. Um, and this tells us nothing about the plurality, uh, the Trinitarian nature of our God, but I, but I disagree. Notice that he says, let us make man in our image. Then verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image. But we're not created in the image of angels or the heavenly council, whatever that is. As we've already seen, the fact that God is a person and he creates us as persons in his image and likeness gives us great value and dignity. Let us create in his own image he created. I think we're getting hints and echoes here already in Genesis chapter 1 of the Trinitarian nature of our God, that he, in a sense, is plural. We were just sang it in the first song um, that we sang, holy, 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 a merciful and mighty God, singular, one, in three persons, plurality, three, blessed trinity. That's, that's the doctrine of the Trinity. And this has been um, confirmed. This has been the confession of historic Christianity from the beginning. All the great confessions of the faith uh, point to this. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it like this. Question four says, what is God? God is a spirit whose being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. That's our God. Question five then says, well, is there more than one God? There is only one, the true and living God. Question six, well, how many persons are in the one God? Three persons are in the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are the one God, the same in substance and equal in power and glory. This is the doctrine of the Trinity as it is progressively revealed through the pages of Scripture. One God eternally existing in three persons. Mysterious? Of course. Impossible to understand? Not at all, because it's pretty clearly revealed in Scripture. And should this really even be that shocking to us? One of the main things that Genesis 1 is trying to convey is that God is God and we are not. He is the creator and the source of all that exists. He is above all. He is transcendent over all. He is working all things together according to the counsel of his will. Should we really then be that surprised that this perfect, infinitely holy, transcendent God is not like us in some 
ways? No. He's a trinity. He is one God, three persons. God is one and three. There is one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. And the Son is not the Spirit. You can just get those quick short phrases, or then you understand the trinity fairly well. We don't have to understand and try to plumb all the depths of its mysterious inner workings. But it's here. God, the Father, Jesus comes and says, I am God. The Holy Spirit clearly is also God. One God, three persons. It's foundational to the Bible. It's foundational to our atonement and our salvation. And it's foundational to all of reality. If Jesus is not God, you are still in your sins, and there is no hope um, for us. But for many of us, we treat the doctrine of the Trinity as if it was some insignificant, embarrassing doctrine that we'd rather sweep under the rug and hope that no one asks us about. Well, that could not be more wrong. The doctrine of the Trinity is about the identity of God. If knowing God is eternal life, as we saw in John 17, then there is nothing more important than getting the identity of God right. And this God reveals himself as a trinity. Therefore, we should delight in this doctrine and seek to know it and affirm this doctrine as well as we can. And let's, let me be clear. You cannot deny the trinity and be a Christian. You can't. Mormons deny the Trinity. Jehovah's Witnesses deny the Trinity. Oneness Pentecostals deny the Trinity. Thus, they believe in a different God than we do. Right? A different God, uh, that we, as we would argue, than the God of Genesis 1 and the God of the Bible. Again, God is plural. We see it here in the text. But why, again, why does this matter? Why is the Trinity such a big deal? Well, two things to consider. Most people affirm before the world, in the beginning, there was God. A lot of people affirm also that God is love. But these both cannot be true without the doctrine of the Trinity. Love requires an object to be loved. Before creation, God could not be loved if he was only one because he would have nothing to love. But with the Trinity, we see that before there was anything else, there was God, one in three, not only one personal God, but relational. The three persons of the Trinity in perfect, loving fellowship and relationship with one another from all eternity. Which means that going back to our previous discussion, not only is the personal God basic and foundational to all of reality, but the personal relational God is basic and foundational to all reality. Relationship is part of the very fabric of reality from the very beginning. God is a relational being from the very beginning, which means a number of things. First off, it means that he did not need us. and He did not create because he needed to create us. But if that's true, the fact that he did Create us. The fact that he graciously created us for the purpose of being in relationship with him makes him all the more gratuitously good and delightful and to be desired above all else. He did not have to create you, but he wanted to create you. He did not need you to be in relationship with him, but he lovingly wanted you to be in relationship with him. 
which means that not only do we find the personal relational God as the basis of all reality, but the personal relational loving God as the relation as the basis of all reality. It's only in this Trinitarian nature of our God that we can truly say that God is love, which makes love foundational to reality. So it's not the impersonal, not the solitary, not power, but God who is personal and relational and love. What beauty Genesis 1 and the God of Genesis 1 then brings to our creaturely existence. This is where you will find purpose and meaning and fulfillment and identity in, in the God that created you to be in relationship with this God, the God that is personal, the God that is plural, the God that calls you to exist and to live in relationship with him. This is the God that we worship. All right, next, we got to keep moving. Personal, plural. Next, God is powerful. And this one should be pretty self-evident. He creates the heavens and the earth, which we saw last week means everything. This obviously requires a lot of power. The first law of thermodynamics says that energy cannot be created or destroyed. Well, that doesn't apply to the beginning, because all that energy had to come from somewhere. And it comes here from Genesis 1.1. From God creates everything. I was reading today, I, uh, earlier this week, I was reading this physicist, because I don't understand physics, so I was reading and trying to understand a few things. Um, he was talking about energy. Energy is one of those words that we all understand, but it's impossible to define. It's impossible. Uh, the usual definition is energy is the capacity to do work. What does that mean? What is it? Really? Well, I didn't know this, but I was reading this physicist, and he's not a Christian. He's smarter than I am when it comes to things of science. And here's what he says. He says, it's important to realize that in physics today, we have no knowledge of what energy actually is. Okay. We, just don't, we don't get it. We don't understand it. Because there's nothing to get. There's not a tangible thing that is energy. It's not something that we can see or touch or hold. All of our most brilliant scientific minds don't really understand it, but they know that it's there and it all comes right here. And Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning God creates everything. All of a sudden, from nothing comes everything. All of that energy and matter and all of it. And when physicists and scientists are being honest, they, there's so much about reality that we don't get. There's so much that we cannot understand and explain. There's so much complexity and so much beauty and all of it is brought into existence by God. That is power. And we need to be reminded of this at times. We need to meditate on it because our understanding of God is always too small. And plus, much of Christian theology from the very beginning has been about explaining away God's absolute power and trying to limit him and put him in a box and say what he can and cannot do. But one of the main things that I want you to get from Genesis 1, one of the main points of this chapter is its attempt to convey God's absolute unrivaled power. His absolute sovereignty over all that he has created, which means his absolute sovereignty over all things. So this is one of the reasons why I talk a lot about the sovereignty of God, because it's, it's, it's foundational to everything else. 
The first chapter of the Bible is starting here with the absolute sovereignty of God. So it's pretty important. Everything was brought into existence by the word of his power. Thus, everything in existence depends upon the word of his power. Thus, everything in existence is his. He is absolutely sovereign. I have, I have little patience with systems of theology that minimize and limit God's sovereignty. So much of supposed Christian theology is far more man-centered than it is God-centered. We've got to protect man's sovereignty. We've got to protect man's free will. And we limit God's sovereignty and God's free will. Genesis 1-1 will not allow that. Genesis 1-1, at the beginning, solves all of these debates, solves all of these arguments. God is the sovereign king. He is free. He is the beginning and end of everything. He is limited by nothing. If he's limited by anything, by me in any way, well, then he's not a very impressive God. God is perfectly powerful. Power is being conveyed in Genesis 1. Pick down to verse 16 for another example of this. Again, we'll look at this next week. Verse 16 is the fourth day, uh, the creation of the sun and the moon. Light has already been created on the first day. We'll have to sort that out next week. But notice what Moses does here. It's pretty brilliant. You might miss it if you're not paying attention. Moses doesn't call them the sun and the moon. There are very simple Hebrew words for the sun and the moon that he could have used, but he doesn't use those words. He just calls them the great lights. Why? Well, well, think about it again in, in, in its context. Moses is writing to Israel, surrounded by all these systems of false religions with all their false gods, and those religions often deified everything. And so in Egypt, Ra was the sun god. And he was the most important and most powerful because you look around and, well, the sun, that's the biggest and most powerful thing. That's Ra, that must be God. And this, again, the sun and the moon are not just planetary bodies. They were persons. They were gods to be worshipped and all of these other religions. So here, in refusing to name them, Moses is demoting them, and he is insulting them. Hey, you know those two big great things in the sky that you worship? God made those. Right? right? The things that you think are the most powerful things were actually created by God and are completely dependent upon him, the actual most powerful one. And oh, by the way, they're not God at all. They're just, they're just some lights in the sky. They're part of the creation, just like everything else. And so Moses is putting these so-called gods in their place, which is no place at all. He wants Israel to understand that God is more powerful than any competitor. There's no one who can compare with God, no one who can compete with him. He is the biggest and the strongest and the most powerful. That's largely what the plagues are about in the book of Exodus and in the very next book of the Bible. God is demonstrating his superior power over Egypt and over Pharaoh and over their powerless gods. He is more powerful. That's what you need to get from this chapter. The sons are not gods. It's just a son. But even if it's just a son... Uh, Pretty impressive, because the sun is astounding. It's huge. The sun accounts for 99.8% of the mass in our solar system. Everything else in our solar system is 0.2% of the mass of the solar system. The temperature of the sun can reach over 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. 
I start complaining at 80 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. You can fit over a million Earths into the sun, and guess what? The sun's not even that big. As far as stars go, the sun's kind of a medium star. And there's estimates of that there's over 100 billion such stars. Our minds can't deal with numbers like this. We cannot grasp sizes and power like this. And according to Genesis chapter 1, it is all of it created by God. That's power. And that's further confirmed by verse 2. Let's finally get to verse 2. We've got to figure this out. Look at verse 2. You're going to have to help me because I don't know the answer. Verse 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the earth is without form and void. What? What just happened? God created the earth. Kind of seems now like the earth is a bit of a mess, maybe? I don't know, but the Hebrew words there is tohu wabohu. It's a really cool word. You hear it in all Hebrew classes. You know, if you want to sound like you know Hebrew, you know tohu wabohu. I don't actually know Hebrew. Uh, but I know that word. Uh, it's formless and void or empty. It seems that in verse 2 that something is wrong. Right. Formless and void are not good things. And not only that, look at the next thing. There's darkness over the face of the deep. Well, what does that mean? Well, whatever it is, it doesn't sound great. Darkness throughout the rest of Scripture represents evil and death. It's one of the plagues in Exodus. It sometimes represents judgment. Sometimes it represents calamity. Generally not a positive thing in the Bible, so here's darkness. I think we generally skip over this verse in our consideration of Genesis chapter 1 and creation. Verse 2 seems to have a negative, ominous, tense tone. Something seems off in verse 2. Verse 1, amazing and comprehensive and good. The beginning, God is there, and he creates everything. He creates the earth. Verse 2, the earth is formless, void, empty, dark, chaotic. What's... What's going on here? Well, the bad news is, is that Genesis doesn't seem too interested in explaining to us what has happened in verse 2. There's a couple of different options. I'm going to speculate for a moment, but let's keep in mind that the fact that Genesis doesn't give us more detail tells us that this is not the point of Genesis 1. Again, the point is God. We can look at some of these secondary things, but we don't want to be distracted by them from the main point. But let me speculate briefly. It's too fun not to. One of the biggest questions of this whole chapter is how verse 1 relates to the rest of the chapter. We're going to tackle this more next week. There's a couple of main options. I'm not going to tell you what the answer is because I'm still sorting it out. I find myself going back and forth between them. Um, the most common understanding by many is that verse 1 is a summary statement for the whole chapter. Uh, this could be like your, your heading or your title. All right, God creates everything. Boom, here's, all right, here's the specifics of how he does it. All right, so the summary statement of what he did, the rest of the chapter details it and unpacks it. So in this view, which is maybe the majority of you, really nothing actually happens in verse 1. It's just telling you what's about to happen. It's giving you the summary of what God does in the rest of the chapter. But I think that view kind of raises some questions about verse 2 and what's going on in verse 2. There's another view, again, that I, I, I'm going to be honest, I like it. I think it's fun, and I think it's interesting, but I cannot defend it, or I cannot prove it from Scripture. So again, this is entirely speculative, what I'm giving you here. I like the idea that there's something actually happening in verse 1. In the beginning, God creates everything. There was nothing, right? Then there was everything. But if that's the case, what's the deal with verse 2? Well, remember that everything includes 
everything. They're pretty brilliant, right? Uh, so at some point in the course of creation, somewhere in these first couple of verses, God also creates the spiritual realm and the spiritual beings that occupied that realm. We're not doing anything about their creation in Genesis 1, but we know that they were created somewhere in here because only God is uncreated and eternal. Somewhere in this process, God creates angels. And then by chapter 3, something has gone terribly wrong, and we're introduced to Satan, and he is not good, and we're not told how he got not good. But some people speculate, again, speculating, some people speculate that verse 2 is a result of the fall of Satan. We know that Satan had to fall before what we call the fall in chapter 3, right? He is already sinful. He has already fallen when he's introduced to uh, the scene. So we call it the fall in chapter 3, but something's already happened before that. There was some sort of rebellion. And so some people speculate that God creates everything in verse 1, including the angels. Sometime after that, there was Satan's rebellion, plunging God's good creation into the condition that we see in verse 2. Oh, no. Trouble? Is, is everything lost? Not at all, because God is powerful. And at the end of the verse, we see the Spirit of God hovering. Right? There's, there's, there's a foreshadowing. Look, darkness, emptiness, bad stuff. The Spirit of God is still there. There's formlessness. There are all these things, but there's still the Spirit. And something is about to happen. And then, boom, verse 3, there was darkness. Now there is light. God is powerful. Even Satan cannot thwart and cannot stop him. And so he begins to form and fashion the earth anew in verse 3. It's a fun idea. It's fun to speculate, but it's impossible to be dogmatic about it. The text simply isn't clear. So again, we don't know exactly why things are in the state that they are in verse 3. Two. We'll talk about this more next week. And it's also possible that I'm just reading the verse 2 negatively. It could simply be that God brings everything to existence in verse 1, and he brings it into existence in a, an unfinished, unformed state that we see in verse 2. And then starting in verse 3, he begins his work of forming it and filling it. So again, we'll sort some of this out more next week. But the point in all of these possibilities or options is that his great power is absolutely evident. Can you imagine all of this and the billions of stars that we cannot even begin to comprehend? All of that is brought into existence by the power of God. Now let's see. Let's see how he does it. Let's last, last point, final one. God is phonic. Now, again, I apologize for that one. I admit that that one is a stretch. Phonic comes from the Greek word for voice. So I was trying to come up with any P. And so I'll go, I'll go to the Greek. Um, and so all I'm trying to say while sticking with my P's is that God speaks. This is fundamental to who he is. Verse 3, whatever's going on in verse 2, boom, here's the spirit. We're back to God. We're introduced to him again. And what is it, the first thing that he does? He speaks. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So not only is he personal, plural, power, plural, powerful God, not only is this God at the foundation of all reality, but the phonic speaking God is. And that puts language 
And thus the minds and the reason that God has given to us to comprehend that language at the beating heart of the universe. Martin Luther wrote 500 years ago that there is no mightier or nobler, nobler work of man than speech. Why? Because in speaking, we are imaging God. We'll get to what it means to be created in the image of God in a couple of weeks, but this is a massively overlooked aspect of it. God speaks, we speak. We are primarily speaking beings, and in our speech, we are reflecting our God. Again, we've heard this so much, we're so used to it that we're bored with it, we don't really consider what it actually means. Word comes before light. Word comes before everything. Word brings everything to existence. Word is the foundation of existence. I was trying to explain this to Emma the other day, and it didn't work, but in a very real sense, the world is made of words. Whatever is going on in verse 2, God shapes it, and he orders it, and he organizes it with words. Reality is ordered and structured by language. God speaks, which means for us, our most important job is to hear, is to listen. I mean, think about other religions. Think about Roman Catholicism. Consider how central seeing and sight are to these false religions. Right? They are very visual. There are images and there are idols. There's great extravagance and there's great beauty. And it's all grabbing and clamoring for the attention of your eyes. Notice the difference here. It's an oddly cream-colored wall and a bunch of wood, right? Not a lot that is visually, aesthetically pleasing. Look, all the pagan religions back then surrounding Israel at the time of Moses were like this. Remember, he's teaching and writing. He's opposing these false religions that were obsessed with sight and with visual and with idols and with seeing. This is a new way of thinking. As one scholar puts it, whereas everyone else thought with the eye, the Hebrews thought with the ear. And that is because the centrality of the word, the centrality of God speaking. The cliche is seeing is believing, but biblically, it's hearing is believing. Again, Luther writes, he says, if you ask a Christian what the work is by which he becomes worthy of the name Christian, he will be able to give absolutely no other answer than it is the hearing of the word of God. That is, it is faith. Therefore, the ears alone are the organs of a Christian. For he is justified and declared to be a Christian, not because of the works of any other member, but because of faith. Because our God speaks, our job is to listen. He speaks. There's a couple other spots in the Old Testament where God just mocks idols. He's sarcastic, and, it's, and I love it. What does he focus on? What does he emphasize in mocking these Idols, Jeremiah 10, 5, he's um, ridiculing them. He calls them scarecrows because they cannot speak. They're mute idols. Speech is the difference. Our God speaks, and when he speaks, worlds are spun into being. When he speaks, life is created. When he speaks, new life is created. That's, that's power. 
All the other creation accounts involve struggle and, and conflict and great effort. Not here. God simply speaks. Everything happens. And what a word. And guys, we have that word. We have God's word. He has given it to us. He's preserved it for us. We have it in front of us. You have it on your phone. It's all around us. We have the very word of God, the same word that creates reality. We don't actually believe that. We don't actually believe that the word that we hold in our hands is the same word that creates existence in Genesis 1. Because if we did, my goodness, we would treasure that word. And if we treasured it, we would know it, and we would read it, and we would love it. As Peter said, these are the words of life and of eternal life. So yes, God, we believe, but God, help. Help our unbelief. We have these words. All right, let me, let me close. Um, we'll look at this in more detail next week. Last thing. Notice the very first thing that God says in the whole Bible. What are his first words? Let there be light. Verse 2, darkness. Verse 3, light. And light is such a loaded term in Scripture. It represents blessing and life and holiness and purity and goodness and presence. There's so much caught up in this term. And notice that we don't get the sun until day 4. So the implication is that this is something else. The implication is that God himself is the source of this light. He is blessing and life and holiness and purity and goodness and presence. He is the most important thing about creation. And the most important thing about creation is that God is there, present and working and active and speaking. It makes sense that the first thing God says is light. The great thing about our God is that he speaks and in speaking, he's revealing himself to us. And that's what light does as well. It reveals, it shines, it shows. So you have two main ideas in verse 3. You have the word and you have light. You have the word and the word is speaking light. The word that reveals the light that reveals. And man, come on, you don't have to go to seminary to get to Christ from this verse. God speaks the Word. Just read it. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Greek word is logos for word. And what was the logos in Greek thought? It was the fundamental ordering principle of reality. It was rational and reasonable and verbal. And John is saying, hey, that logos, that word, the foundation of reality is Christ, who is the Word made Flesh. All things were made through him. Verse 14, we have seen his glory. Jesus has made non God known. Jesus, the word made flesh, the creator of heavens and earth, reveals to us God. He speaks and he communicates God to us. And then in verse 4, we saw in Jesus was life. And in him was life. And the life was what? The light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the Word, and he is the light. And he makes this even more clear. In John 8, 12, he stands up in the middle of the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was the celebration of God's guidance and provision during Israel's wandering in the wilderness. 
The feast ended in a lamp or a candle lighting ceremony commemorating the pillar of fire. Remember, God leads them in a pillar of fire or a pillar of light to provide the way, to show them the way, representing the presence of God in the midst of all of that and the candles and the light and remembering God. Jesus stands up and he proclaims, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let there be light. Jesus says, as the word of God, he is the one who brings light and life. Just as God brought physical light to push back the physical darkness, Jesus brings spiritual light to push back the spiritual darkness. Some of you feel like you're in darkness right now. Maybe wandering. You have the weary soul that we just sung about. You're searching for the way out. Hear Jesus' words. I am the light of the world. We plunged ourselves into darkness by our sin. God sent his son to bring us light and life by taking on that sin, by submitting himself to that darkness and dying our death for us, and then defeating that darkness by rising again from the dead as the light of the world in the light of our lives. Jesus, the light, is cast into the darkness so that you can be brought out of the darkness into that's the good news of the gospel. And that good news is a message. It is a word to be heard, to be believed. For we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Hear and believe. So this is, this is our God. He's personal, plural, powerful, and phonic. He's the beginner of the beginning. And knowing him is life. So know him as he has revealed himself in his word. Know him as he has ultimately revealed himself in the word, Jesus Christ, who is both our creator and our redeemer. That's, that's our God. Let's close uh, with a word of prayer. Uh, Father, I thank you for your word. Father, we could, we could spend hours and hours and hours studying just these few verses. Father, I just pray that you would be the one that would teach us. I pray that you would be the one that would show us what really matters. Um, draw our attention to you and to your person and to your goodness and your power, to your love, Father, to your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. Father, open our eyes so that we may uh, see, open our ears so that we may hear and believe uh, the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, your son, come to rescue and save us um, from your sin. Father, I, I believe and I, and I want to believe this more than I do. Father, I want my life to be ordered um, by who you are and by what you have done to save me. Father, we thank you for your patience and for your mercy. Father, forgive us of our sins. Father, we believe. Please help our unbelief. And we ask and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.